Hello and welcome to the Cinema in Seconds podcast. This is the podcast where we look at small moments in great movies. My name is Ian. And I'm Daniel. And a few weeks ago, we did an episode on movies we love that others hate. So we kind of thought it was natural to eventually do an episode on movies we hate that others love. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's fun to be the champion, be the one heralding something as like a lost gem. Like, don't be mean to it. It's a beautiful work. But it is very fun to be a hater, too. <laughs> Some days, you know, um, most days I find, although I say that, but. <laughs> I did. I wouldn't say I struggled with this, but there was this thing, and it was similar to the problem we had with the the first episode around this theme. We did the inverse, where it's like, hate is a very strong word. Yeah. You know, how many movies are there that everyone loves that I hate? Because there's a lot, and again, this is also partly like as I get older in general, I'm more uh, just easygoing about things and more, I guess, just understanding. Because, like, I don't like Gone with the Wind at all, but I understand why people do, and I can value a lot of its achievements. Um, and there's lots of movies like that where I'm like, well, I don't really think it's great or even good. Actually, I think it's kind of lousy, but hate is a stretch. And one of my picks, I don't know if I'd say I fully hate, but I certainly don't like it. One of the others is a bit more pure. I hated watching this, and I never want to do it again. But um, <laughs> but it was something where I had to, I had to kind of think about it like, this is a strong word. How much do I want to commit to saying like, I hate this? Yeah, I agree. I'm kind of in the same boat. Like my first pick that we'll get to, it's definitely not hate, but um, I'm definitely on the other side of popular opinion, I think we'll say so. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's an interesting discussion too, as it was with the other episode <laughs> is this idea of like how relative these conversations are, because again, there's not like, as much as it goes a lot by vibes. Well, it feels like everyone loves or hates this movie, but yeah, you're kind of just going by your inter- how your sense of people around you. Um, and I think I made this exact point on that episode, but like to go by Twitter and Letterboxd, movies like Miami Vice is are among the most beloved movies ever made. <laughs> and this is not a statement about that film's quality either way, but that's only on in that circle, really. You know, not to say there aren't people outside of like film Twitter who love that movie. I'm sure there are, but it is a more localized kind of phenomena. Um, And to that end, I did think about stuff like Miami Vice or Black Hat or Speed Racer where there's really passionate fan bases online. And I don't really care for those movies. And I thought for this, I'm going to kind of be strictly like has to be recognized as a classic. More largely in culture. So, you know, Black Hat does not count. (laughs) fair enough and the other thing we should point out that we try to do is that even though we don't like these movies we're trying to pick out things the moments that we're picking we're trying to pick moments that we do like in them is Mm -hmm. the challenge we presented ourselves at least i think that's still the plan (laughs) no way it is okay i was like that's what i did that's what i did too okay good and it is that it goes back to that positive thing of like i i do hate this but we're not so I don't know, consumed by our rage, like a Sith Lord, one might say, that we can't also see the value that others see. That's right. No, like I hate it, but I also like trying to to understand. Like I find that's the case. I recently, speaking of, you know, Michael Mann's more divisive late period works, I rewatched Miami Vice recently. 
uh, just kind of coincidentally, not for this show, but I was thinking about it in the background and was going into it less like, all right, you nerds keep saying it's the best thing ever. Let's see, like in a judgy way, but just being like, okay, like I want to take another chance to understand what people see in this, especially because I generally like Michael Mann's movies. So I would love to love this one too. So there isn't, not to say I'm like always going to take the high road and be positive above all, all else, but I do think it's valuable to try and um, find those positives in films rather than just like dismissing it outright. I agree. Um, and there are movies that I've done that with where I'm like, okay, a lot of people like this. I'm going to, I guess I'll give it another try. And I'm like, oh, actually this is, I, either this is really great or I see more into it. So at least my opinion of it has gone up, right? Um, mm-hmm. Blade Runner is a big one for me that did that. I don't, I still don't love Blade Runner. I don't know that I'm ever going to get there. Oh, you'll right? get there. <laughs> but I, but I at least appreciate <laughs> it a lot more than I used to. Um, yeah. Well, and that's a that's a good segue to my first pick because it is a film that I used to like capital H hate. And now I would say I'm more like I don't like it and I don't enjoy watching it, but I did like it more or I appreciated it more in a second viewing. And that's Mel Brooks, 1967 film, his debut feature, The Producers, um, which is was not initially well received, but was kind of quickly revived in part because Peter Sellers gave it a glowing review and then it ends up winning the original screenplay Oscar uh, that year launches Brooks's career. He of course goes on to have like an enormously successful and influential career as a film comedian. Uh, And I generally should say, I don't much care for Brooks movies. Uh, I rewatched recently blazing saddles. I'm not crazy about it. Young Frankenstein. I think, yeah, (laughs) We'll get into it a little bit probably too because it kind of ties into what I want to say about the producers. But Young Frankenstein is a movie that I think looks great and does a wonderful job capturing the tone and feel of the Universal Monster movies. And I find a lot of the jokes that aren't done by Madeline Kahn not funny. Um, I I mean, I don't like Robin Hood Men in Tights, but at that point I feel like I'm more in line with the consensus as probably. it goes on. But um. Yeah, his sense of humor, I find, is very undisciplined. It's just like scattershot gag after gag after gag. And while there are there's cleverness in there, there's also a lot that just feels kind of stupid to me and more pertinently, not funny. And that's relevant to why I don't like the producers, because, wow, this is a loud, obnoxious and annoying movie. Everyone remembers it for Springtime for Hitler, the great sort of parody musical number of the imagery and iconography of uh, the Third Reich. And that stuff is great and ties into the moment I'm going to talk about. But that's really a small part of the movie in terms of runtime. Most of the film is actually the plot about wanting to put on a flop of a play to get make money from having a flop through like tax loopholes or what have you, uh, which is a good premise. But the execution is a lot of like Gene Wilder acts hysterical and yells about Zero Mostel being fat. And just repeated jokes about like dining old ladies to get money for the play. Just very repetitive, very loud, very hysteric. And it's also Brooks's first film. So visually, it's kind of ugly and drab and plain. I find it a very unpleasant film to sit through. And I tried. I rewatched it recently, having hated it when I was young. I was like, all right, you've read all this stuff about its satire and why it's what it's doing is really clever. And it's it's, uh, in those aspects. 
let's, you know, I'm open to this being another Andre Rublev where I'm like, this sucked as a teenager and I rewatched as an adult. I'm like, wow, no, it's brilliant. I'm like, no, this one still kind of sucks. <laughs> um, but there is something I really like about it, which is the springtime for Hitler uh, uh, section where they have that musical performance and uh, the where it's sort of taking the elements of Nazi imagery in both the propaganda films and propaganda imagery and presenting it in the most buffoonish way possible. And I think there's a lot of clever details in that. But the moment I want to talk about specifically is the audience reaction, where at first they see the Springtime for Hitler musical number that opens that show within the movie, and they're disgusted and appalled and they're so offended. It's playing right into what Gene Wilder and uh, his producer partner want from this, that it's going to flop. And then the first proper scene starts. And it's that actor whose initials are LSD playing Hitler, who's kind of this hippie burnout with this goofy voice and goofy way of delivering lines. And you see the audience who are starting to walk out, stop, hear him talking, and they start to laugh. And they start to warm and they come back. And there's even one line from a lady who says to her husband, essentially the equivalent of, oh, look, he's funny. And they all come back and flock and start laughing and yucking it up. And I find this really interesting because I talked a lot about how like we look at we, the audience watching the film, look at the springtime for Hitler musical as a satire on the imagery and pompousness and buffoonery and the sort of inherent silliness of the pageantry of the of Nazi images. But that's not how it's being presented in the context of the story. It's being presented as this offensive, tasteless thing to guarantee a flop and the audience uh, who is presumably educated to some degree, they're wealthy enough to attend this this Broadway show, they recognize that as being distasteful and gross and vulgar, and they're about to leave until the man with the funny voice and accent comes in and their uh, critical thinking immediately goes out the window. It's like, oh, he's funny, and they just accept it at face value as this silly, funny thing because they're not watching in the context when he comes out. It's like, oh, I get it. It's a satire. They're just watching it as, oh, it's funny. And I find that really interesting in terms of reflecting on Mel Brooks's overall legacy in culture. And specifically how so much of the legacy of his maybe most famous film, Blazing Saddles, is boiled down in that expression of, oh, you couldn't make a movie like that today anymore. And the <laughs> implication is usually, and there's some variation, but it's usually some variation on this idea of like, everything's too PC nowadays, it's too woke, you couldn't say these things in a comedy, you know, people would be so offended and uptight. And this is so common that I recently bought a really cheap version of the Blu-ray to rewatch, and as I was buying it, the guy selling it to me was like, couldn't make a movie like that today. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just give me my goddamn disc. Um, and I, you know, when you hear that, I can't help but wonder, like, do these people, when they're saying this, understand that the movie is like a satire of not just the racism that's embedded in the Western as a genre, but the racism that's embedded in the history of America as a country and the present day of America when the film is made in 1974. Or do they just think it's funny that it's a comedy where people say the N-word a lot? You know, you think about this, the producers coming out a couple years after Dr. Strangelove, which is not a Mel Brooks associated movie but i think it's relevant as a comparison in terms of satirizing nazi imagery with the titch of the character and it's like do audiences watching that movie recognize that the film is making 
yes, it's funny, but it's also making a really critical point about both the um, sort of rehabilitation of Nazi scientists into things like NASA and the the sort of space program and Cold War uh, science divisions under Operation Paperclip, and also more generally making a point about how the uh, tenets of fascism continue to endure in a post-World War II environment in the new superpowers. Do audiences get that, or do they just think it's funny that Peter Sellers has a silly German accent? And I think that Brooks, obviously he couldn't know that would be his legacy with Blazing Saddles when he's making the producers, but in a bizarre way, that moment of just, oh, look, he's funny, and the audience immediately losing their sense of critical thinking is so... Uh, representative and emblematic of how his legacy is. And that's not to say it's his fault that people view his movies like this. That's not anything to do with my criticism of Brooks. I just think his films aren't that funny. But I think that there's something really interesting about how he inadvertently captured that reaction and lack of critical thinking that would be so common with the types of movies he would make in his first film. Hmm. So that's my moment. That's a good analysis. I don't know that I like I think most people understand what Blazing Saddles is doing. I think most people do. You don't think so? I don't know. I mean, it's hard to say most. You'd have to poll people again. We're we're limited by the bubble that we live in, I suppose. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I'm thinking, you know, the people that I know that have watched Blazing Saddles, they get it. They know what it's about. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I think. I think the you couldn't make that that these days line. I don't know if it's that closely linked. I I think that it's. I think maybe when some I I agree that some people will be doing that out of ignorance about what Blazing Saddles is about. I think some people are. Might be making a comment on how. The studios don't trust people to make that connection anymore that they will the studio i don't know maybe not but the studios themselves are like we can't make this movie because people are it will take a neat jerk reaction to it um maybe i don't know but i think people get it i think if people actually watch it they'll get it if they're actually paying attention they'll get it you Uh, might be right i think part of it is also caught up by the fact that we're watching like i'm talking about this in the context of a moment where you have so much like you know discussion about oh the wokeness is killing comedy you know Mm -hmm. i should be able like comedians who will be like i'm under attack i should be able to say whatever i want comedy is about pushing boundaries and you know and comedy can be about pushing boundaries but this and that that in and of itself is not inherently bad but it's often used as like this blanket defense of that really doesn't mean you know anything more than I shouldn't be criticized for the things I say. Cause it's not usually the case of like, you should be in jail for saying those things. It's like that joke was in poor taste and wasn't funny. Wow. You're trying to censor me in my expression. And I realize, yes, I'm painting with a broad brush. Not every, a lot of comedians don't do this. Um, but I also do think you see this very like reactionary uh, sort of uh, argument get put forth yeah. about like, PC sensibilities and that's not new that's been happening since at least the 90s in terms of that exact expression being put forth um you know it's like you can't joke about these things and you know or like even the fact that like oh are you offended are you triggered like those exist as like these sort of mocking expressions and a lot of there is a certain brand of comedian and I'll use the word comedian loosely in this context but comedians who that's the real bit 
It's not really about the joke itself. It's just the idea that, like, you know, someone will be upset by it. And, you know, I can't speak to everyone who uses the expression of, like, you couldn't make Blazing Saddles today, what they mean by that. To me, it often does carry this implication of, like, you can't because people would be too offended. Not realizing that, and I someone put this for this on Twitter. I don't remember who it was, but it's like the reason you couldn't make Blazing Saddles today is because a million angry YouTubers would have videos complaining about how comedy is too woke and is catering to the SJW left because that's what Blazing Saddles is actually doing. <laughs> like its values are much closer to the people being triggered, as it were. Uh, maybe not the part where Mel Brooks shows up in uh, red face as a Native American. That would probably get some. <laughs> uh eye rolls in a contemporary context but um i just find that interesting though and i and even beyond considering you know to what extent that expression is being used with blazing saddles just this idea of how people lower their guard and stop thinking critically when it's funny and silly Mm -hmm. you know it's just a silly comedy it's a silly accent and the guy doing a voice like you know this audience so clearly sees the celebration uh, of Nazism as being bad until oh it's just it's just a funny voice right. <laughs> um I, I think it's thought provoking and I think that that's something that for whatever my complaints about the film elsewhere being over overly drawn out and tedious and unfunny that scene really got me thinking and like I watched the film weeks ago now and when I saw that I knew I was like I'm gonna talk about that on the podcast at some point I don't know when or what the context <laughs> will be, but I'm going to talk about that. It is interesting how um, how prophetic it does seem to be for Brooks himself. Uh, that is that is interesting, and you wonder if he's if he saw it with other comedians and he expected that he's he's kind of going to be in the same boat. Probably, I will say I'm also like I'm with you. I I do not like this movie. <laughs> <laughs> for much of the reasons you said it is obnoxious and it's just not that funny like i don't know and I you're was, a brooks fan i think i was disappointed I, I yes i like brooks for the most part i would say the only one that i really love is blazing saddles mm-hmm. i've never really got on the young frankenstein bandwagon but like when i grew up we were like oh cool a funny robin hood movie and sure you know but and space balls i've never really been that into space balls i guess i'm a blazing saddles fan <laughs> that's that's where, where it comes See, down. that's another i did rewatch that recently as well and specifically with the because i saw it when i was like maybe like 12 maybe even younger and it was just like a funny movie my parents liked and a lot of it just went over my head because it was like mm-hmm. an old person movie at the time for me <laughs> now watching it it's like okay now i've actually for if nothing else seen a lot of westerns so i know what they're parodying so i got it more and i can appreciate the the racial satire of that film, I think, holds up really well. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of really sharp beats in there. There's, I love how it really calls out this idea of like a black man needing to perform his exceptionality for the bare minimum of tolerance for racist whites, especially considering how many like Hollywood films about race up to that point and still function within that framework. Um I think that's pretty on point. And you even have Gene Wilder say like, wow, in another 50 years, you might be able to walk down the sidewalk next to some of these people, some line to that effect. And it's like, that's pretty cutting. And mm-hmm. for 74, I imagine that might be like really like, you know, getting to the sort of cutting to the bone in a way movies, comedies weren't at that point. 
but a lot of it just doesn't make me laugh. Except Madeline Kahn. She's a gem, and I love her. She's the best part of Young Frankenstein, too. And so the producers is one I hadn't seen. Like, it wasn't one I watched. I don't know. It's That one doesn't have a lot of appeal for, like, younger audiences. So... Mm -hmm. Except unless I hear the springtime for Hitler thing, like, oh, a Hitler comedy, that might be funny. And even Uh, that's like a little bit older, like Spaceballs when you're 10 can be appealing. You're right. If you like Star Wars. Yeah, it's a big guy made out of pizza. And yeah, you're you're good. Yeah, yeah. And Um, you recognize the things being made fun of. Exactly. Yeah. But this one, yeah, I just when I did finally watch it, I was it just was like a limp noodle. I was like, what is going on here? This is not. Have you seen the remake? No, which I might, my understanding is like the remake is an adaptation of a stage show, like a Broadway musical. Mm. And it's very close to the musical to the point of like, you didn't adapt it enough for film. Okay. So it doesn't make sense in this context. And it's just kind of like, and also it feels redundant because there already is a producer's film that even if we don't like it does have a cinematic legacy. So it's like, it just feels kind of passe, especially because like, you know, producers comes out the original in 1967. I don't know when the musical was made. I think maybe the nineties, maybe the eighties. I don't know. But then the musical film comes out in like 2005. And it's yeah, like I've at never, that point, you know, never had a desire to watch it. And at that point, it's like, it's not, this was cutting 40 years ago. It's not really now. And even like, I will say as much as I'm praising the, elements of satire in terms of the Nazi stuff in the film. I do think strange love handles a lot of that material in more interesting ways. Although that might not be a totally fair comparison because strange love is like maybe the best film comedy yeah. ever made. <laughs> exactly. So like maybe that's being, huh, maybe that's being too mean. Wasn't as good as Dr. Strange love for some reason, you know, it really isn't. <laughs> and it strange love gives you the chance. Cause the first, other than the opening montage with the planes being refueled, being super phallic, the first couple minutes of Strange Love are relatively straight, setting up all the plot details. It's really once you get to Buck Turgidson that the movie starts to turn up the comedy. So it's yep. like, we'll give you a couple minutes, you know? Settle in, figure it out. Other comedies, you get your jokes in now, make your claim for the throne. Once Stanley starts, he's not stopping. And I do like uh, I do like Gene Wilder, but I don't know. The dynamic with him and Mostel just doesn't work for me. No, I agree. I just yeah yeah i'm not a fan like they just weren't very likable and no they're annoying yeah they're very annoying and i mean the whole dating the old ladies thing didn't go very well and hasn't until 2014 when wes anderson did it right in uh <laughs> <laughs> grand budapest hotel yeah and like that's another thing where like that joke in and of itself is funny at first but it's like you get everything you need from that within the first couple minutes and then it kind of keeps going back to it. And it's like the joke's made. And I feel that way about a lot of Brooks movies too. Like Blazing Saddles, there's the one scene where you cut to like when the the rowdy gang is going through the town and they're causing mayhem and they cut to like the one guy's holding the old lady back and the other guy's just like punching her in the stomach. And I find that funny. And then she looks into the camera and goes, can you believe the cruelty or something like that? And I'm like, eh. You had a good joke and you yeah. blew it, Mel. Yeah, uh, overdoing the joke. I get that. Yeah. So. Well, you got to you got to make it easy for all the people who, um, who say that they can't do make those today. 
how to spell <laughs> things <guess> so. out. <laughs> yeah. Right. I do. I would agree with you that I, I think on average, most people do get it to an extent, but I also think the prevailing expression of you couldn't make that today. I genuinely by and large comes from a place of like, you can't say that because people would get too offended. Yeah. That's my claim and I'm sticking to it. That's fair. Until scientific evidence proves me wrong. But until then, <laughs> sticking to it. All right. Should we move on to my first one? Yeah, let's rock and roll. Okay, so uh, disclaimer. <laughs> yeah, this is not a movie I hate by any stretch of the of the word, but I thought I just felt like being inflammatory. Okay, Dan, <laughs> I just thought we'd light a fire here. So, how? What better way to do that in this day and age than talk about Star Wars? So, I'm going to talk about Rogue One. <clears throat> um, again, don't hate it. But boy, did I not, I was not on board with it like most people. And Rogue One, of course, is the first like official spinoff of, you know, the two that there's been, I guess. They were planning a whole bunch more and that just kind of fell through. Um, So with Rogue One, I don't know. I just found it very disappointing. And for a few reasons, I think. One is I, I kind of find it dull. <laughs> I don't yeah. know. I think it's not overly exciting. I think it's very, I mean, it's slow paced, but I don't like saying that as a bad thing because some great movies can be very slow paced. I would say it's not well paced. I think it for the type of movie it is, it needed to move a little faster. I think that the characters aren't overly interesting and I didn't really love any of them. Um, and that makes for a tough movie. That takes makes for a tough watch. Okay, let's get into the, something that I like about it and then explain why that's also a problem. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so with Rogue One, one thing I will say is there's a final battle on like this tropical isle, island planet, which is cool because we haven't seen a tropical island planet in Star Wars yet. So that was kind of a neat thing. Um, and there's a pretty wicked space battle above the planet at the end of the movie. And there's one cool thing that they, they did. They had this part where the rebels were like, they had kind of like these battery ram ships. And what they do is they'd ram into a star destroyer. I can't imagine the physics of this would actually work, but they ram into a star destroyer and like push it into another star destroyer. And so that it would blow up. And I'm like, that's pretty cool. That's like something we haven't seen in a star Wars battle before. And I mean, this battle is pretty wicked as is, but it's still up until that point. It's still pretty much Return of the Jedi type battle. And then but they do throw in these little twists like this that make it just something interesting. Um, So I really like that. And there are lots of parts of Boat Rogue One that I like. And most of it has to do with um, the fact that the battles are really set up and there's some very cool visual stuff. And I think that they they mimicked like some of the sounds and things like that from the first movie. Well, but I do think that they put a lot of effort into making the ending of this movie as bombastic as it is um, with the space battle, with the fighting down on the planet and very specifically the Darth Vader hallway scene, which I think 
kind of painted people's opinions of it because they walked mm-hmm. out of that movie saying that was an absolutely exciting ride. But in reality, it was like 15 minutes of one and a slog to get to that point. At least that's how I feel. And I, I wonder if they can, and I know that the lot of that ending was reshoots and I feel like, I don't want to say it's, we were tricked necessarily, but it does sort of feel like that. Like, like all this stuff was pushed to the end so that when people are actually physically walking out of the movie theater there, that's what's hanging out around in their brain. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, that's. Oh, I think you're right. I mean, I do agree that it's a pretty tedious movie for a lot of it. And I think what it comes down to is not strictly just that it's slow, but that for a long stretch of the runtime, it's a movie in search of a motivation mm. because Jen or so does not care about the rebellion. She doesn't really care about her parents or that tragic backstory. She's just kind of like there and vaguely unhappy. And, you know, the Diego Luna character, um, Andor, uh, who is now, you know, in that show, he has more of an investment into the, into the rebellion, into the story, but he's not the main character. And so we're left kind of just like, sitting around like okay like things are happening and there is a story but there's no sort of hook there's Mm -hmm. no emotional hook for an audience or for the characters and it's tricky because like the basic idea premise of like oh how did they find the death star plans is kind of like on its face like i guess that's kind of like a neat starting point for a story but in practice who cares it doesn't matter you know within the context that's just the device for the first film what matters is like the texture you can give it in context. If you're using that as a starting point, that's fine, but there needs to be more than that for an audience to care, especially an audience beyond just like the most fervent of hardcore star Wars fans, which even for, I think both of us and even for you having like empire, I think is your favorite movie. You would not define yourself as being like among the most hardcore star Wars fans, you know, I think there's a point where I would have considered myself that, um, but I have, I'm not going to say, I don't want to say anything that makes it sound rude, but you know, I, you've tried to live, already I said more to live than a well-balanced could. life. We'll say that. <laughs> I'll say that just saying, I don't want to say anything. It's like in the RLM talking about clerks three and Jay's like, I don't want to call the movie pathetic, but I guess I just did like, <laughs> you, you, you know, cats out of the bag. But what I mean is that like, there's, you know, this like, unless you have like just this desire to have like every piece of the universe explained and that in and of mm-hmm. itself is satisfying, it's not enough, you know? So the, it does feel like, and again, I don't know for sure what the reshoots motivations for them were, but it does feel like part of it is motivated by like, Oh, this movie's kind of a dud. We need to add in a lot of exciting stuff. And yeah. for that reason where it's like, you leave feeling like you saw something impactful. I, I felt a similar thing when I saw the second fantastic beasts movie where it's boring and makes no sense but at the end they reveal spoilers oh the the evil boy child whatever his name is aurelius it doesn't matter is actually dumbledore's half brother so it ends on like a big twist was that what happened uh, yeah i saw it i still don't remember (laughs) that's the thing i feel like it's only it feels very much like and this is very cynical but just thinking like okay this movie is like nonsense and nothing happens. And unless like you dedicate yourself to Harry Potter stuff, pro- most of it probably 
does not make sense or more importantly is not interesting enough for you to care to want to invest into it but it does end on a very obvious like oh wow what a twist so that anyone leaving the audience leaving the theater the initial reaction is like "Woo, that's a big reveal yeah. even though nothing else of consequence happens and there's a similar thing with with rogue one i think um and i think the darth vader scene is a big part of that because mm-hmm. i it doesn't it doesn't it feels fan fictiony to me it doesn't feel natural in terms of the other movies in the context of the other movies like or in a, the context of this story yeah it doesn't feel like darth vader would just decide well let's let's go nuts and uh and then like at the beginning of the first movie he's just he lets the stormtroopers do everything and walks down the hallway it's like that's what vader would do he's mm. not going to be like all right guys here we go swing back the cape i got this like that's not really vader mm-hmm. <laughs> like that's not mm-hmm. the vader we know so that part kind of always bugged me too that's yeah. fair i like that scene in more just because i think the the direction is a really good job selling like the terror of the guys in that hallway I like that That's part true. of it, but I see your point. Yeah. And it does feel like, okay, we need to put something in here really cool so that people feel like they got their money's worth as a story. It doesn't congeal. And that's why, again, I say it's like, it's a movie in search of a motivation. Cause in addition to the spectacle, once you get to that third act and it's like, okay, we have to go to the planet to do the thing. The movie is more engaging in general because there's like an objective that Jin, the protagonist cares about. So right. It's like, okay, like I can, it's not much, it's not great, but it's something Whereas so much of the rest of the movie is just like, it looks good. It's not like incompetent, but there's not really much going on. Um, And it didn't, I don't know. I don't know how far I want to go into this, but what the hell we're here. It didn't really feel Star Wars-y to me. And for somebody who's a big Star Wars fan, that was kind of a big deal. Like, and I don't know if I can really put my finger on what I mean by that. But Star Wars has a very specific tone to it and has a very specific like story structure to it that, and I mean, this is a spinoff, so it's not necessarily that it needs to fit that like, like the numbered movies do. But when I was watching, I was really like, there's, there's just something off about this. I don't know. But again, that's coming from a, from somebody who's been a pretty big Star Wars fan their whole life. Mm-hmm. But then yeah. there are people who are like, well, this is their favorite Star Wars. This became their favorite Star Wars movie. There's a lot of people out there like that. So I don't know. Well, this is an interesting one to talk about in terms of this question of like perspective, because my read on this film is less a film that like everyone seems to love. There's a couple of reasons really? for that. One is that a lot of my friend group doesn't actually really care about Star Wars. Like I'm probably myself and my partner probably the biggest star wars fans i know like in real life as it were like in the town that i live in right um and we thought it was fine i don't know she might like it more than that i don't think she loves it though we don't own it on blu-ray and we've never been like we got to rewatch rogue one um so i'll talk to her after this and ask if she does (laughs) love it just to verify but you know and then like it's so hard to gauge the online temperature of any of this because again as we've talked about before like this myth, like everyone hates the last Jedi is really like the people who hate the last Jedi are very loud about it on social media. It's not right. really accurate to say everyone hates it or even most people hate it. And again, like with, with rogue one, it's hard to, 
it's less extreme than with Jedi, but it's similar. Like, I don't really know what the actual vibe check is on this movie. And in part because it does become, it's so weird to talk about this with Star Wars, but it does become this almost like really tribal thing of like, if you're very anti Last Jedi, Rogue One is the easy movie to latch onto. It's like, well, this is what it should be. Look how awesome Darth Vader is. You saw a similar thing happen with season two ending of The Mandalorian, where it's like, Last Jedi looks like this sad loser drinking blue milk, and he's like lonely and a hermit. But in Mandalorian, he's awesome and kicks all those robots' asses, just like his dad did in Rogue One, because Luke was always a bloodthirsty killer. <laughs> That's what I loved about him. Um, sidebar, this is something someone brought up on Twitter and I want to bring it up to you now, even though it's not really related to what we're talking about because you're a Star That's Wars fine. fan. But he basically made the point that like when I was growing up and Star Wars was popular and everyone loved it, but the way people talked about it was that Luke himself kind of sucked. Han Solo was the cool one and the space battles were cool, but Luke was whiny and it was like, I want to go to Tashi Station and pick up some power converters. When did this idea that like Luke is the most awesomest hero to ever exist become a thing? And I was like, yeah, that's kind of how I remember it, too. I don't know if I ever didn't like Luke myself, but I don't think I ever thought of him as, like, cool the way I did, like, James Bond or Indiana Jones. I like the movies. Yeah, especially with Han Solo works. standing right beside him. This is <laughs> Han true. Solo is a cool hero. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I'm with you. I don't. I'm with you. Like, obviously, there's a fondness towards him because he was he's the protagonist of three movies that most people love when mm-hmm. they grew up. But you're right. <laughs> yeah, like, I don't know. I don't and know. I do think that, like, that does cloud uh, Rogue One. It clouds it clouds Mandalorian Season 2. You know, this idea of, like, it becomes this weird, like, internet fight where people latch on to, like, this is what Star Wars should be if they really hated Last Jedi. And that can go the other way, too, where, like, you know, if you're someone who, like, was really embracing the what those movies were doing what last jedi was doing say then when something like mandalorian season two is playing more into just like fan service here's luke how you remember this idealized version of him that didn't actually exist but that you have imagined from childhood maintaining that it's easier to be more negative about that because it feels like a correction to cater, cater to that fan base and it does become this weird like the movies themselves are more are less important for what they are than as like chess pieces for this internet battle, (laughs) which is so annoying to talk about because it's like star Wars. It's not (laughs) come on. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I'm kind of in a weird place with star Wars right now. I don't know. I I'm really feeling the milking of the franchise lately in Facebook terms. Would you say you're in a relationship and it's complicated? That's right. (laughs) That's right. And I think, and going off of Rogue One, the the Andor TV show, I think it plays a big part in that right now. See, that to me seems much more like something everyone loves yeah. than Rogue One. Yeah. And I'm, I don't know. I don't know. Am I? I'm just a margin, I guess. Because I, it was fine, but again, I think it has suffers from a lot of the same problems that Rogue One does. That it's the characters aren't really that great and it's not it's kind of boring (laughs) there's like a few episodes there that are pretty cool um but i think it comes down to the fact that this universe is expanding into all these places it's stretching the idea of what star wars is and i think that's weird for me because like i said i feel like star wars has 
like what makes a Star Wars movie a Star Wars movie, right? That's the that's the question I'm tackling right now. Mm-hmm. And I do think that there's a specific tone to it. And I think that there's a way that the story goes, like the stories are laid out um, that fits. And I think that the core movies, even Rise of Skywalker, which I'm not a fan of, I think it still goes for what makes a Star Wars movie a Star Wars movie. I think that there's, you know, a lot of writing and directing decisions that tank that movie. But even then, then then people, then people's argument to that is, well, it needs to do something new. Like you can't stand it. I'm like, okay, I get that. That's what the last Jedi was. (laughs) It stuck to star Wars's main cores, but did something new with it. That's what Mandalore. That's what the early Mandalorian did. I would say too. I think that that, captured what star wars was but did something different with it and or is something completely different and so people are saying that it's the best star wars thing they've ever seen and i'm like dude empire strikes back is right there like how could you say that and it's it's just becoming so far removed from what star wars was that it's kind of like i don't know i don't know how to feel about it interesting i i'm really tackling that idea because i don't want to be I understand that I'm being closed-minded in that sense and that if it expands, I mean, and does all these different things, more people will latch onto it. And that is what's happening. And that's great. But I'm talking about for me specifically, I'm like, what do I want from Star Wars? And mm-hmm. well, and that's, I mean, mm. Patrick H. Williams has that video about that where it's like, the I think even this title, like, what do we want from a Star Wars movie? And it's an interesting question. I think, you know, the fact that there's not really a source text, it's not like Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter where there's like, there's the sort of books that are like, maybe you prefer the films in some cases, but there is like, this is the core. And Star Wars, like you sort of have that with the original movies, but, you know, even that's like in flux a lot of the time. Like you think about like as much as, you know, George has said some degree or another at points, like, oh, a lot of it's planned out from the beginning clearly not clearly not you know and also he keeps changing them themselves so those aren't even really stable um but it is this i think it's an interesting question of like what do we and it's also tricky because star wars in its nature is in and of itself a hodgepodge it's like you know all these different influences and mythologies that are having different parts pulled from and condensed into one whole so just as a viewer of the original film, maybe you really latch on to the Jedi and the mystery and spiritualism of that. Maybe it's the dog fights. Maybe it's the science fiction. You know, maybe it's the robots. Like there's there's different things that you as a viewer might really latch on to. So any subsequent films, it's like that's maybe what you and that's it may be more shallow way of thinking about which I think you're more into like the tone and feel yeah. of the movies than the details themselves. Right. But it is another factor of like what does it mean to be a star Wars fan in the context of like an audience member, what they want from a sequel? Um, Well, my issue is now that Disney's got this and they're because when Disney first got the thing, there's lots of people that are like, Oh, we should do like, well, we should do like a film noir in the star Wars universe. And we should do all this kind of stuff. These different types of movies in the star Wars universe. And I'm like, okay, but at some point, like, why does it have to be Star Wars then? Sure. I don't know. I guess that's my question is, why does it have to be Star Wars? And the, there's this uh, cartoon thing called Visions, which I haven't really got into. And some people say it's pretty cool. It's like a bunch of animated things about Star Wars. But I did watch the first one. And it was basically a Kurosawa story. 
And the only thing Star Wars about it was that there was a droid who was dressed up like a like a like a peasant, and the samurai sword was a lightsaber. Mm-hmm. I'm like, that is the thinnest veneer of Star Wars. Is like that this is not. And even though I know that Star Wars, a lot of that basis comes from comes from uh, like Kurosawa influence. I get that. But mm-hmm. I was like, why is this Star Wars? Well, Other than just because to put a lightsaber in something. To bring it back to Rogue One, it's this point of like, well, if you're going to go hard left turn and do something very different, Rogue One still hinges on like references to Star Wars. Mm-hmm. The Darth Vader stuff, randomly having the guys from the bar in New Hope show up on the planet having C-3PO and R2-D2 for no reason. The fact that the plot directly corrects the plot hole, which we won't even need to get into how stupid that is. But, oh, yeah. you know, <laughs> for it to be the film, like if you're going to do like, and maybe Andor does this, I haven't watched the show at all, but if you're going to do like, okay, we're going to take the war of Star Wars more seriously, like treat it as like this resistance, gritty, violent, like life is cheap and you're not important and expendable, like really go there. You know, like if you're gonna do that, like you kind of, it kind of, this is maybe a, a less prestigious franchise to draw comparison to, but the eighth Saw movie is very different in its visual style from the other films, but it also is like another prequel that ties directly into the other films and gives another early apprentice for the Jigsaw character and all this stuff. And it's like, you're trying to break away from the other movies in ways that could very well alienate the fans of those films, but you're also tethering it so fully to those films that you can't really watch this on its own terms. Mm-hmm. And Rogue One is doing that, I think. And I don't, I can't speak for Andor. Maybe Andor is more of like self-sufficient as it were. But, you know, if you remove, if you say, oh, well, remove the Star Wars name, just look at this as like a war, science fiction war story. You can't really do that. Because right. it's constantly, it's a paratext and it's reminding you of the main text. Yep, that's fair. Okay, thanks, Dan. I needed that therapy. <laughs> You're very welcome. <laughs> You're very welcome. Sorry, everybody. I do like Star Wars. I really do. And I don't hate Rogue One. I There are there are admirable moments in it. Like we I'll say this to defend Rogue One. The one thing that people pointed out as a plot hole of like, well, you know, it's really dumb in a new hope now that Leia says plays dumb. Like she doesn't know why Vader's there when based on how rogue one ends, but like, again, and I'm not the first person to make this point, but if you get pulled over by the cops and they ask you, do you know why I pulled you over? You always say, no, you don't go like, yeah, I was speeding because you, there's no reason to give up that information. That is essentially what's happening in star Wars. The beginning of the first movie, like, of course, Leia is going to play dumb. No, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't realize people were complaining about that. I've heard that complaint get leveled. Are, though. Yeah. Now that you may say that, of course they are. Yeah, and I'm like, good God. So now we're going to need a, a Rogue One prequel that rectifies that plot hole yep. like Rogue One rectified the Death Star weakness plot hole. <laughs> That's... Anyway. Okay. Let's move on. Yeah, let's move on to a film so diametrically opposed to Star Wars, it's hysterical. I'm talking about John Waters' Pink Flamingos. I can't believe that you added this as a featured movie. Did you do it so you know that I'm going to try to watch it at some point? Is that so Here's the thing. Is that what you're doing? I actually I don't want to see this movie. You might not believe me 
but I resisted putting it on this list for that exact reason. I was like, I almost <laughs> oh, don't want to do this because I know Ian's going to hate it. And I tried, like I was going through, like, what if I did this? What if I did that? And eventually realized like, I have to do this one. No other film that's everyone loves that I hate like this. There's, there's not another one. Like there's other films that I hate that a lot of people I know love again, talking about stuff like black hat or speed racer, but in terms of like films that are seen generally as classics, there's very few of those that I truly hate. I can usually find some redeeming quality or it's things that I say I hate, but I also saw like a million years ago and I'm like, that's not really fair. And if I saw that again, I probably wouldn't hate it. Pink flamingos. I saw for the first time recently. Um, what is there even to say about Pink Flamingos? It is incredibly unpleasant to watch. It's horrible. It's amateurish. It's shot like shit. I mean, that's the thing. It is... <laughs> this is a lo- classy way to describe this, but it's all content and no form. But usually when you say that, it's like, oh, well... It's like Kubrick will say that about Charlie Chaplin because his films are very simple cinematically, but their stories and characters really cut to the bone. That's not the case with Pink Flamingos. What it is is that everything interesting about the movie is just strictly what happens in it. The weirdness of the characters, the bizarreness of their performances and the things they say, the strange, like what can pass is the plot where it's like basically these two families, real Hatfield and McCoy scenario, uh, struggling for who who gets the reputation as the filthiest person alive. And it's just them reveling in various acts of filth to prove they, in fact, are the filthiest. You know, you've got a woman tied up in a dingy-looking basement near naked, having chickens thrown at her. Uh, You have Divine eating an actual legitimate dog turd on camera and clearly wincing in horror. You have an incestual blowjob between a mother and her son, not real in the real life, but in the context of the viewers, if your listeners, if you'd see Ian right now looking into his, his, the crystal ball to see his future. I think this one might break my commitment to the, no, you got to do it. Don't be a quitter. And the point is like every, and this is the things that I'm saying are interesting about the film. This is why it's (laughs) notorious the way it's this. And maybe this is like, and that's, I don't enjoy that to be clear. I am all for transgression in film and breaking boundaries, but this is transgression without motive or purpose. It is just being as tasteless as can be for its own sake. And I can get why that might resonate with people as like a cultural artifact or as like a, it's interesting to watch people react to the tastelessness, but feature length, man, I can't do it. Um, But the other thing is just cinematically, like so much of it is just like, It's flat lockdown camera. You start on like a zoom in on someone's face. Camera slowly zooms out for someone else to talk and repositions. It's it's so poorly constructed. And I realize complaining about this is like complaining that Metallica doesn't write enough love ballads. Like it's not really like (laughs) what people are here for. But what they are here for is the content. And the content is like tastelessness for its own sake. And it doesn't say anything. It's uh, and I again, like I went into this, like knowing that and I wasn't like pro clutchingly offended or anything. It's just gross and unfunny and uninteresting. It's not like presented in a cinematically interesting way. It's not funny in context. It is like even thinking about like the jackass movies, which are like obscenely gross. But there's a humor to how those are constructed as like gags 
and it's pranks. Maybe that appeals to you. Maybe it doesn't, but there is like efforts of like setup and payoff um, and how the characters react to it. It's not just extremity for its own sake. Uh, so yeah, I don't enjoy watching this film at all. And it's pretty definitively proved to me that like the early John Waters films are not for me. I am still curious about some of his later stuff. That's a bit more flirting with the mainstream thing, stuff like Crybaby or Serial Mom. I uh, especially... I watched ten minutes of Crybaby. Yeah, and it made me not want to watch any of his other movies. <laughs> See, I can only imagine how much you'll love Pink Flamingos. But, um, I did say, like as we said, like something we like about this movie, and there is right. something to this film that I think is really strong in general. I think some of the core John Waters cast are genuinely fun to watch performers. And the main one is divine who is this drag queen who is the lead in a lot of his original run of films. And she's the lead in this film, the poster where it's her and the red dress, the blonde hair, she's got the gun. Uh, she's the one in the story. Who's the filthiest person alive. And I do think she's genuinely a good performer. She's genuinely like fun to watch. She has, such revel in the line delivery she has. The one really famous moment from this movie is when she's being interviewed as the filthiest person alive. And one of the interviewers asks her, can you give us some of your political uh, views? And she goes, kill everyone now. Condone first degree murder. Condone cannibalism. Eat shit. Like she's, and it's like this just torrent. And again, it's, that's indicative of like the style of writing this film has, or it's just blunt, like taboo breaking without, without principle, without discipline. But her as a performer is so committed in those lines that it is still captivating to watch. And that's also like watching like a YouTube clip compilation of the film's highlights distills the film's weird energy into a digestible, which is maybe the wrong choice of words for a movie where a woman eats shit on camera, but digestible uh, framework. Watching it as a feature film is like, no more, please. But in that same scene where she gives her political views at one point you just see her she's wearing a dress so i'm giving that context because it's not a nude scene but she she's getting her picture taken by these reporters and asking questions and then at one point she grabs her breasts and says how's this for a center spread and sticks her tongue out while holding her breasts in this really like silly pose and i like that moment one again because i just i like divine as a performer but i also i will say in terms of like depicting this character and depicting her her pride in being the filthiest person alive this line is such a confident expression of self. You know, this, how's this for a centerfold? There's no shame. There's no embarrassment. There's just complete like acceptance and pride. <laughs> I like that. And I think it's, it speaks wonders to divine as a performer that that bit does work for me in spite of everything else in this movie, working against me, enjoying it. Um, And this might still be a cheat for the context of this episode, because again, like, when people say this is a classic, they don't generally mean that in the same way they would say like Casablanca is a classic. Right. You know, I hope not. <laughs> yeah. And I don't think that like the critique I make too many people would object, like fans would object and say like, it's actually a brilliantly shot and edited film. I think they would agree. It is amateurish. Um, but the fact that it is like a film that does have this, because it's not enjoyed ironically, like it's acknowledged as being amateurish, but there is seen as like real value and and uh, uh, quality in the film. And uh, I don't see it, but Divine is a performer; she's got something. So, so I'll is give that, it that she that the name? 
her name of the performer and her character in the movie or no the character is it's not divine i just i just call her okay. divine because that the persona right. is kind of the same in all the movies for her well, just everybody calls her divine so i didn't know if that was the character name or i will double check what the character's yeah. name is but uh oh yeah i don't want to watch this <laughs> sorry <laughs> oh i can't believe you did this to me the character's name actually is Divine slash Babs Johnson. Okay. So there you go. Uh, there you go. Uh, yeah, I, you're going to hate it probably more than I do. <laughs> so good for you. Awesome. Looking forward to it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you got to do it. Now, here, I'm going to throw this out to you. So this is, yeah, it is considered a classic film in the sense of its milieu that it's working in. Do you actually know somebody who does like it and champion it? Like personally? Like personally? <laughs> um, I don't know. Well, okay. I don't want to speak for her, but I know Izzy, who's been on the show, Be Kind Rewind, is a John Waters fan. And I know she liked my tweet when I said just watched Pink Wa- uh, Pink Flamingos. And I had the image of the gif of Homer after eating all 64 slices of American cheese going, I think I'm blind. <laughs> I don't know if she likes this movie. Um, and I know, I think I've got at least one friend who probably, I'm guessing, knowing him would champion this based on the conversations we've had. It's certainly not a film that like most of my like in real life friends have seen for yeah. a start. Um, but it is also a film that like if you pick up any book of like 101 cult movies, you must see. This one is always here. My book of 101 cult movies, you sh- must see. This is the cover. Mm. So it is a more niche movie, yeah. but in terms of like that level of like, and it's also because it's niche, that's also part of it. Like the fact that like my mom is not going to watch this movie ever. Like she would never stumble across it. Um, The people who do see it though, are the people probably most inclined to like it in the first place. Mm -hmm. And they really love it. Cause I think you're the only one I know that has seen it. I mean, Michael oh, probably Michael's has. seen it. And <laughs> he, Michael probably has, but... I think he hates it even more than I do, but yeah. probably less than you will. <laughs> <laughs> oh, looking forward to it. Because you watched, like, Cronenberg's The Fly, and you're like, this is too gross. <laughs> yeah. And that's all movie make magic. It's make-believe. <laughs> what year is this? Is it 82. 80s? Oh, 72. oh it's that, I didn't realize it was that old. Well, okay. and that's the thing. Like, it's in like that pre- context... Texas Chainsaw Massacre, even. I don't mm-hmm. know. For some reason, I equate the two. I don't know if that's fair or not. But... Low budget, shocking films. That's, yeah. And I think, like, in the context of that, you know, and John Waters has talked about this idea of, like, the late, the early 70s, you have the rise of, like, hardcore porno films being relatively respectable. Deep Throat is one of the highest grossing films the same year as Pink Flamingos, for example. And this idea that, like, a lot of the, like, the, like the mom giving her son a blowjob is like, this is where the culture is at. So we need to go further. Mm. So thinking about it in that context does make sense of like, why it is so tasteless is this idea of like, there's no frontiers left. Like this is what it is. And the fact that it is so just repugnant and gross is itself kind of the point, but how valuable that point is, I don't know. Uh, and again, it is in service of mostly nothing. And while some of its weirdness can be like, like, for example, there's a character played by Edith Massey, who's like 
an adult woman, relatively older woman, but she's like dressed like a baby and she's in a baby crib. And the only thing she cares about is like, there's a man who delivers eggs a la a milkman, but he's the egg man. And she's just all so excited to see the egg man. And like in the context of like a short clip, you might be like, Oh, that's kind of funny and weird. But as a main character in a feature film, it's like, <laughs> that sounds like the worst movie ever made. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't go that far, but uh, okay. <laughs> I think I gave it one star on Letterboxd. Okay, the lowest you can give. Oh, I can go lower. Oh, no, you I can chose... do half a star. You can, okay. and I chose not to for this because I like Divine. There you go. All right. Well, I think that fit the bill. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um. Yeah, I sorry, I don't have much to respond other than it's already shock valuing. It's shock value is paying off for me already, and all I'm doing is talking about it. So. I think that's why I think a YouTube montage does you well. You get like it distilled. You get the you get the funny lines because there are a couple of funny lines. Mink Stahl has a very famous one where she says like, "Well, I guess there's just two kinds of people in this world: my kind of people and assholes." And it's rather clear which group you fit into. That's a good line. Is it worth sitting through everything else? No, not really. <laughs> and the scene too, like some of it is genuinely uncomfortable to watch. Like again, like eating dog poop, for example. But also like. I mentioned the scene where it's like someone's in this like dingy, dirty basement, barely dressed with like live chickens being shoved in their faces. And you can't help but just be like, uh, like the safety of that. And also, like, I'm pretty sure like the, if you're an animal person like that animal's kind of being abused on camera. And like, I don't want to be a hypocrite. I love Apocalypse Now. And you watch a bison get, you know, slaughtered in that movie. But it's also like part of, you know, a cultural ritual being shot. And not just like, you know, it'd be gross and weird if we threw chickens in an actress's face in a basement. So, yeah, not the most fun movie to watch. Sounds um, classy. I was talking to a mutual friend uh, about this movie and about talking about it on the show. And he basically made the argument that it's like that film is essentially that generation's version of like two girls, one cup where no one watches that. I don't know if you're familiar with that video, Ian. Okay, you're nodding I know, solemnly. I know of it. Wait, that's what I meant when I asked that. <laughs> Not like, just, have you logged it on Letterboxd? Just clarifying. <laughs> <laughs> How many stars do you give it? Um, but like this idea that like you don't actually watch that for enjoyment in and of itself. You watch it as like this exists. And then if you ever watch it again, it's to watch other people react to it. And that does put it into a context of making sense. But again, it's like, Okay, I don't enjoy watching it, and I would never enjoy watching watching someone react to it because I would still have it in the periphery. <laughs> so, you know, maybe if they're watching it in VR, so all I see is their face with the big goggles reacting, then that's different. Like, okay. if I could watch you watch it in VR, I am down for that. We'll see if we can arrange something. <laughs> Good to know. <laughs> Imagine VR, you got the headset on and the eye, you, you literally, like, can't escape. Ugh. And while you're in there, I'm going to like duct tape it to you so you actually can't get it off until the movie's doing? over. This is okay. I think we got to move on. <laughs> this is getting worse by the minute. I think you just want to escape. <laughs> That's right. And I won't let you. No, the goggles I watched this. Yet. You have to too. 
okay. I'll watch the kissing booth via Ross. Thank you very much. And if you watch this. I, I don't think I'm getting the I think I'm still getting the short straw there, man. Well, I already <laughs> saw this. I've already been there. I've been to Mount Doom. I don't need to go back. <laughs> I'm ready to go on the boat and hang out with uh with the elves and with Gandalf. Okay. You're stuck. You never left the Shire. You gotta go. <laughs> All right. Well, what what's my next? I don't even know what my next one is. Um, <laughs> oh yeah, I, think I broke your brain. You did. Uh, okay, the next movie I'm going to talk about seems um, tame in hindsight, and this is The Kingsman. I, what year did this come out? I didn't even look I, up the year. I already have to correct oh, you. Sure. The King's Man was the prequel. This is just Kingsman. It's just Kingsman. Okay. Yeah, twenty fourteen. Uh, Does that right. sound right? That sounds right. Um, so the Kingsman is kind of set up as like this. I don't know, sort of like James. It was kind of like a James Bondish ness, inspired by James Bond, but it was also kind of like an ultra violent. Um, mm-hmm. action it's movie. Edge Lord James Bond. Yeah, Mac and Matthew Vaughn is the director. Um, starring Colin Firth and the guy who played Elton John, who has a really what's his name again? Egerton, Taron Egerton. That's his name. And and Elton John is in the sequel. Oh really? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Anyway, I, I never saw the sequel, but I remember hearing sequel. about this. Makes sense. Okay. Uh, yeah. So. Kingsman is basically the story of this street kid or whatever uh, who gets recruited into this James Bond-like idea, uh, the society, underground society thing. And he has to go through all this training and he ends up with like a bunch of other recruits and they end up being trained for this program, which is like a spy secret agent program. And I don't like it. I don't really like it. So... (laughs) It's Sorry. one that <laughs> it's a movie that a lot of people just really latched onto. I don't know what the sentiments like now because people aren't really talking about it, but it did have a couple sequels and people were saying that it was awesome and oh, it's like the action in this movie is great and it's uh, it's uh, you know, so cool and I just don't get it. I don't get this movie. To me, it kind of seems like, you know, somebody who we all know these people, somebody who s- swears a lot because they think it makes them sound cool. That's the equivalent of this movie to me. It's going so far out of its way to look cool that I think it's ultimately just I just roll my eyes at it all the time. That said, there's still parts about it I liked and most of it were the training montages and specifically there's a scene where there's a skydiving where they get pushed out of the plane. They're all skydiving. There's probably, I don't know, eight of these people that are competing for their spots, Um, but they're supposed to be working as a team. And so then they're told one person's shoot doesn't open and they've got to figure that out. And so then they have to like make this plan for, okay, we have no idea whose shoot it is. that doesn't open, but we got to figure out a way that we can get down safely. And so they come up with this system where they're going to hold hands and, one by one start pulling off the shoots so that they'll eventually figure out who it is that doesn't have the shoot. Um, 
And I like that scene. I think it's it's a cool like team building idea and it's exciting and and thrilling and it's got its own little mini arc going on. And there are some other cool stuff they did in that training montage. So it's not without its like high points. Like it's I I get why people like it. Uh but there's just some really dumb stuff in it. <laughs> like a, the character's name is Eggsy, which is probably the worst protagonist name I've ever heard of. <laughs> uh, second, it's just, it's just like it wants to be super cool. Like, there's a part at the end where oh, a bunch of people's heads explode because it looks gory and people are, it's going to be shocking and people aren't going to expect it. Um, and there's just like lines that people say and, and things where it's like they're trying to push the envelope and you know, be naughty in a sense, right? To be very British. Oh, be a little naughty. And I just think it's dumb. I just roll my eyes at all that stuff. So I don't know. I don't like it. I know that a lot of people do, and I don't understand that. And a lot of this comes from the other the other movie I was going to bring up was Kick-Ass, which you and I talked about right before the show. And I debated mm-hmm. that one too. I hate that one more, um, just to be fair. But it's the same director, and I think it's the same issues. I just think it's yeah. trying to be ultra, ultra cool, and for me, it fails. There's a quality to Kingsman that's very... I mentioned Edgelord. It's very, like, not just trying to be cool, but, like, look how provocative we're being. Exactly. I mean, the scene that sticks out to me in memory is the famous church shootout scene. The exact details of how it happens don't really matter, but right before the shooting, which is done in this fake water, which doesn't actually look good because the camera moves in such a jagged way that it's very mm-hmm. clear that like it's being faked. Not that I need my wonders to be legitimately all done in one take, but you know, when it's that egregious and obvious, it's like, why even pretend, you know, like yeah. they're just, just do it with cuts. Cause then you can also condense the time and make it like tighter as an action scene anyway. But, um, Right before, you know, Colin Firth is going to leave and it's like this right conservative leaning church. And so he says he goes in this like big monologue of like saying all the things. I don't remember anything really he says, but it's everything that would offend a far right Christian old woman, you know, about like uh, black people and gay people and abortion and like all these like, oh, oh, so offensive. And it's like you watch. You can imagine the idea of watching it like, yeah, stick it to that old lady. But it's so like undaring and shallow. It's not actually transgressive. Like unless you're like, again, like the most hardcore, you know, platonic ideal of like a Fox News viewer. There's very little there that's actually transgressive. Like to go back to my pick, Pink Flamingos, like I may hate it and I may think it's undisciplined, but it's genuinely transgressive. You know, mm. it's genuinely breaking taboos in a way that that scene, maybe if it was made in the Hayes Code, it would be, but it's not now. It's not saying anything that would be actually challenging to that audience. It's a very low bar. It kind of reminds me of like when people will share photos from like bookstores that have like the banned book section and it's always like Harry Potter. It's like, <laughs> whoa. And yeah, I get there was the weird far right reaction to that, but like there's no actual dangerous ideas in Harry Potter. You know, like that's not actually transgressive. And there's a similar thing going on here where like it, it it knows that it's, it's satisfying, especially to a younger audience to 
to sort of defy authority, but it doesn't actually have any gumption to really be defiant in any meaningful way. It's all for um, show. This whole movie is just for show. Like it's just yeah. to put on a spectacle and to look as cool as possible. Mm-hmm. Like that church scene, I my eyes were at the back of my head <laughs> mm-hmm. during that church scene. I just... Uh, and then everybody and it, people praise that scene. Oh my goodness. It has not held up well. Yeah. And I I will say, like, I saw the movie with very low expectations on like DVD when it would have come out. So I was kind of pleasantly surprised that it was, I don't know, entertaining, but at best it's a B minus to me. And if I were to watch it now, it's probably less than that. Um you know, Kick-Ass is it's an interesting comparison because like in addition to it being Matthew Vaughn, because that's another film that like when I saw it, when that one came out, I was younger. So I was like, I don't know, 15, 16, maybe. So I was like right in the sweet spot to be like, oh, this is awesome. And then just mm-hmm. a couple years later, rewatching it, I'm like, I still think it's entertaining, but it's much dumber than I kind of thought at first. And it feels much more obnoxious. And that was only like a couple, I was like 19 watching it. I can only imagine watching it now just being like, oh, I gave this one way too much credit because I was a teenager. Um, Kingsman, I was old enough when it came out that its charms were not so overwhelming to me. Uh, and I do wonder if like people who are a bit younger than me who thought that was like just the shit when it came out are going to be more like, oh, maybe, yeah, you know, be reassessed. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's possible. Mm-hmm. I I think so. Like, I don't know. I I brought this up and mostly because of the reaction to when it came out like it was it it was getting a lot of buzz like a lot of buzz a lot of positive buzz and I mean the sequel came out I don't know how that was received but and then there was a I think poorly too. was it I think so um that being said even though I did bring it up for the show I don't know what the reputation is now it does seem to kind of gotten but gone by the wayside, I think. I think, yeah. I mean, it's it's hard to make those claims. I'm very suspicious of those kind of claims in general in after the last year of like a Top Gun sequel, an Avatar sequel, and a Game of Thrones prequel all being huge hits when everyone on the internet swore. Those things aren't cool and no one cares about them anymore. Um, but at the same time, yeah, like I don't I don't think there's necessarily like much of a passionate swelling around Certainly not the franchise, but this first film either. Um, so I don't know. I, I I don't hate it personally, but I certainly don't think it's particularly cool, nor do I have any real desire to revisit it ever. And there's something it does seem like, at least in terms of like online circles, there's been a shift away from there was a shift maybe towards the sort of ironic and detached and cool type of action movies that we're now kind of moving away from and like sincerity and traditionalism, traditionalism and aesthetics, not necessarily values is kind of embraced a lot more. And a lot of what those films are doing is like, Oh, it's like a James Bond spy movie. But you know, in addition to this attitude, it has, it's very like modern and it's like um, the way it constructs action scenes and like having this uh, uh, sort of snarky style that now is like, I think I kind of just want like, a traditional spy thriller is a lot more appealing. Yeah. Um, so I think that's part of it. Just the tastes uh, flowing away from that. 
Yeah, I can see that. It did seem to be a trend there for a while. Um, and now, now you've got like movies like, I mean, John Wick actually, I guess would have come out the same year, but John Wick kind of built up its reputation over time. Mm-hmm. And it would kind of fit more into that sincere, let's just make a really solid action movie kind of deal. And that's a good example of like, it's super silly, but it doesn't. Yes. And but it Kevlar presents, suits. <laughs> yes. But it presents that silliness with a certain conviction. And the style of the action, they're very modern in some ways in their, um, you know, in the technology that makes them and the sort of the ease of the special effects and whatnot. But the action scenes are fairly traditional. And even when they do something like the newest film where they've got the the sort of isometric uh, framing of the one action scene where it's like with the explosive shotgun, you know, that's a pretty novel way to shoot an action scene and feels very much inspired by like top-down shooter video games. Yeah. But the principles of it, of just like pulling back, letting the action play out in a wide frame where you can see everything and letting it play with as little cuts as possible there's a lot of traditionalism in that in the principles of that, even if the details of it are a pretty fresh spin on how to shoot an action scene. Yeah. And I think people are really latching onto that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, I don't have much more to say about Kingsman. That's fair. Yeah. Well, there's are those are four movies that everyone loves that uh, we hate. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I will say nice. your two picks. I think I'm both like, yeah, they're fine. Yeah, I'm with you on the producers, and I'm almost sure I'm with you on Big Flamingos. There, I would be more surprised by a UFO landing in Central Park <laughs> than I would be, or rather, like I'd be more surprised if you would liking if you like Pink Flamingos. Like my sense of the world is shattered. <laughs> If you like Pink Flamingos, we're living in a simulation. Yeah, there's no question after that. I cannot wait for your Letterbox review, even though I'm sure it's just going to be like, God damn it, Dan, and that's all it'll say. <laughs> it might. <laughs> it hey, man, might. I didn't make the movie. Don't blame me. Take it up with John. All right. I-, I will say, movie's worth it because it gave us Homer's phobia, and John Waters that's is really true. good in that. So. Yep. Um, We promise we'll be more positive next week, everybody. We're going to be back Uh, to movies we love. What's our topic next week? I don't know if I want to make that promise. (laughs) Oh, maybe. Maybe. (laughs) We'll see. Um, Anyway, should we do some mailbag? I took, uh, you know, as a great, as well, just quickly, as a great man once said, let the hate flow through you. And I take that to heart. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, I think we should do some mailbag. All righty. Um, so we're going to start with our Spotify results from the car movie moments. We asked people what their favorite car movie moments were. Uh, Miles said Back to the Future, Fury Road, and Duel. Although nice. Back to the Future has a cool car in it. I don't know if it's a car movie. And, mm. Dan, and Dan and I don't... Uh, I mean, that's stretching it. Dan and I aren't for stretching our topic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're How dare you? Sticklers to the <laughs> rules. Ignore our love for buses and trucks and not cars. <laughs> um, speaking of stretching it, Alex says Lucas's love of cars likely brought us the Millennium Falcon. So my top choice is the first hyperdrive jump. <laughs> so that's stretching it. That is stretching it, but I can definitely see the logic. <laughs> like it makes sense, you know, 
It's like when you read like a philosophy paper and you're like, okay, the conclusion this person came to is not right, but I admire the steps they took to get there. Uh, William says that he's not a big fan of car movies, but he's been watching a few recently. So he pointed out the pure racing speech from Senna, which is a mm. documentary that I, I quite that. liked. And he said that Duel's diner scene is pretty great. With tense, yeah. which it is. I agree. Two picks for Duel. Yeah. Young yeah, Stevie we were, we representing. Were sleep, we were sleeping on Duel. I do like Duel a lot. Yeah, I did too. Um, okay, to the email. So we got an email. This is a ways back, actually, from Carl. So thanks, Carl, for sending it in. And this was from our biopics episode. And I had brought up First Man. <clears throat> and so he actually brought up another great moment he liked from First Man. So he says it takes place shortly before the climactic trip to the moon. And the astronauts are doing the press conference. And the reporters are asking the men what they take with them on the trip. And while the other men are saying, like taking photos about their families or their favorite snacks, Neil answers with, if I had a choice, I'd bring more fuel. Uh, and it's like, yeah, that brings a single-mindedness to the character and how shut off to emotions he is. I think that's a really great moment as well. And it's a nice pay setup that we don't realize is set up to the payoff of what he does bring. Yes, that's right. <laughs> you know, the that's fact true. that he's dismissive of the sentimental things, but brings the most sentimental of things possible. Yes. And it's also interesting because running out of fuel was a genuine concern that they had just before, just as they were landing too. So um, good. Thank you, Carl. Yeah. Really good pick there. And then one more email from Philip, who has been on our show before mm. on our murder mysteries episode. Uh, so Philip is scolding us a little bit. He says, Hey guys, I wanted to let you know that I listened to both episodes. Uh, he's talking about the, the movies about movies and the ensembles, I believe. No biopics. And, sorry. The, oh, biopics. Yeah. Yeah. And I was disappointed that you had two opportunities to talk about Ed Wood, but with both times. Uh, he says, it's my favorite Tim Burton movie and sometimes my favorite movie. If I were picking a moment, it would be the scene where Ed goes to the big studio head to pitch his slate of pictures. Clearly, Ed is pumped for the opportunity and pitches the vampire tomb, adding no further details. <laughs> so he says, it's a great example of how terrible Ed's ideas were that he doesn't even pitch the story, just the title. And the universal difficulty any creative person has with pitching their work. So he's mad that we have not talked about Ed Wood by now. I mean, it's a fair point. Uh, it's a great scene. And I think it's also, I mean, it kind of ties into to when like they're talking about the, what eventually becomes uh, Glenn or Glenda and uh, with Mike Starr. And it's like, is there a script? Like, no, but there's a poster. It opens in Tulsa in six weeks. This idea of like, in that realm era of B movies where like the title and the poster and the presentation is in some ways more important than the films. And I will say to Ed's credit, I suppose, even though like we, like I know that like the title and posters in a lot of these films is just a lie to sucker you in. It still works. If I'm looking at B movies from that era and I'm like, Ooh, that's a cool <laughs> title. I'll watch that one. And it's like dumb, dumb. You should know, but you, it's effective, man. Good title goes a long way. Oh, it does. I appreciate a good title. And I appreciate good title conventions. 
I will say, like John Wick films. You know what? I will agree with you there. <laughs> it's just so Parabellum close. that's sitting there, just it's kind of messing so it up. So annoying. <laughs> um, I will say though, with Ed Wood, I do love that film. It's not my favorite Burton because it's Batman Returns, but it's probably depending on how I'm feeling, either two or three next to original Batman, maybe. I feel like I have, I should watch Ed Wood again. It's been a long time. It's very funny. It's definitely the funniest. Well, Batman Returns is pretty funny. <laughs> it's definitely the best film he's made with Johnny Depp. Yeah. And I like sense. Edward Scissorhands, but... I actually don't know that I know what my favorite Tim Burton movie is. I don't know. Let's see. Let's run through them. Pee-wee's Big Adventure? Never seen. Beetlejuice? It's not Beetlejuice. Edward Scissorhands? Yeah. Batman? I don't know. Maybe it's Batman. I, I know it's not Batman Returns. Uh, Mars Attacks? No. Sleepy Hollow? I don't know. Planet of the Apes? No, definitely not. Big Fish? I don't know that I've seen Big Fish, I'll be honest. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory? Definitely not. Corpse Bride? No. Sweeney Todd? No. I don't know um, that I like any movies. They're starting. They're starting to get blurry now. Uh, <laughs> Alice in Wonderland. Uh, definitely not. Frank and Weenie. Oh my goodness, you're doing well. Thank this you. Is just off the top of your head. It is. Yeah, I I definitely don't have it open because uh, I didn't know this was going to be the conversation. <laughs> uh, Big Eyes. <laughs> oh no. I'm... Uh, Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Absolutely Children. Not. <laughs> That's one of the two I haven't seen. That and Dumbo. Yeah. Which um, I don't suspect will be breaking my Burton rankings in any meaningful way. I don't think so. Yeah, I have no idea what my favorite Burton is. I guess it's Batman. I don't know. <laughs> it's probably going to be Ed Wood if you rewatch it, I'm guessing. Yeah, then. probably. Because yeah. Ed Wood is like... It's probably the best script he ever worked with. Like, in terms of just... Not that it's like a tight plot, but it's a full story. And the characters are pretty fleshed out, or at least they're probably have the most sort of thoroughly defined personalities. They're not, they're kind of, they each have their gimmick, but they're right. really sort of consistent in that, at least. I love Batman Returns as a screenplay. It's very messy. It's more the direction and tone yeah. and atmosphere that I love in the performances. Um, you know, the first Batman is an awesome experience, but it's got head scratchers like Vicky Vale just being led into the Batcave. It's like, all right, and I guess. <laughs> um, yeah, I think Ed Wood will be your favorite when you rewatch it. I don't yeah, know if you'll love it. Fair. Yeah. Well, thanks, Philip. Yeah. Yeah, that was a good pick. All right. Well, if you guys want to talk to us, so you can answer our questions on Spotify. You can tweet at us at cinema underscore seconds. And or you can email us cinema in seconds at gmail.com. And Dan, you got something cool coming up. Yeah. So the first eyebrow cinema live stream, which is being done in partnership with the screening room movie theater in Kingston, Ontario, we're doing the 24 hour trash cinema telethon where myself and Jordan, who's been on the show before, we will be live streaming for 24 hours as we marathon through a collection of terrible B-movies, a lot of horror and science fiction and monster films, uh, all of which are in the public domain. So we can also not just stream us reacting to the films, but stream the films synced up as we watch them. So you can watch them along with us. And that's going to be 
Saturday from June 11th, June 11th on Saturday to June 12th, Sunday morning from 11 a.m. to 11 a.m. It's going to be amazing and the worst day of my life, probably. (laughs) Uh, It's being done as part of a fundraising effort. Screening Room Great Theater in Kingston has been squeezed rather thoroughly in the pandemic for probably obvious reasons and has a lot of debts to repay and also trying to pay for a new projector as, as the one in one of the theaters has failed. Um, so it is a fundraising effort, but the stream itself is going to be ad free and uh, free to watch. So um, if you can, if you can give to the fundraiser, awesome. If not, and you just want to watch Jordan and I gradually lose our minds. <laughs> that's fine too. Uh, so yeah, that'll be June 11th on YouTube on the eyebrow cinema page. Um yeah, and I'll be posting more details as we get closer to the date. Well, that's a bold, uh, bold plan. I like it. I'm a bold man. That's how <laughs> I live. All right. Well, thanks everybody for listening. And yeah, we'll come back with some movies that we love that hopefully everybody else loves this time as well. So uh, I've been Ian. And I'm Daniel. And we'll see you next time. Oh, 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 oh.